following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, reading from Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 31 through 34. If you want to follow along as I read. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Uh, this really is a very fitting way to conclude the series on humility. Uh, we looked the first week at the humility of confession and how important it is to acknowledge that before God we are sinful people who need his grace and forgiveness, that none of us are worthy of him. The second week we talked about the humility of dependence, and not only are we sinful, but we are unable in ourselves to solve the problem. We are dependent on God to save us and to help us through all of life. Uh, thirdly, last week we, we talked about the humility of giving up. Uh, giving up our own efforts to, to be, be good. Uh, that it has to be a work that Christ does in, in us. But as he does that, that we give up everything out of our love and devotion to him not as a works to gain his favor, but as an evidence of what God's doing in us, that we joyfully give all things up to him, knowing that his promises will be so much greater than what we uh, lay down for him. And it just makes sense that this would end with uh, the humility of the cross. And while the first three weeks talk about really our own humility and what we must do to, um, to be saved by humbling ourselves before God, What's remarkable in the Gospels is that God himself, himself humbles himself. Right? God takes the low, humble way of the cross to save us. So not only do we come to him in humility, but God comes to us with great humility. As Jesus took on, as it says in Philippians, the form of a slave and a servant and laid down his life for us. Uh, but this passage also raises some very interesting questions about the relationship with the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, how, well, you have to raise your hands. But maybe, let's put it this way, maybe you often feel like you just don't get the Old Testament, right? Uh, how many of you, you know, just love to have your devotions in Leviticus? Like, and you just go there because, you know, learning all about how you're not supposed to cook your food and what kind of clothes you wear just really inspires you to spiritual depths, right? Anybody? Uh, and a lot of the rest of the New Old Testament is just confusing, uh, whether it's all the bewildering stuff going on in Judges or some of the horrible stories that go on throughout uh, the history of Israel. Uh, you know, I, great stories, Samson and Delilah. But, like, what does it have to do with Jesus in the New Testament, right? So there's this uh, oftentimes disconnect between the Old and New Testament. And we don't really get what it all has to do with the New Testament and the Christian life. Uh, nice stories, 
but really what's the point of it? Well, the disciples were certainly experiencing this kind of crisis as the New Testament was unfolding before them. That's what's really remarkable about this, remarkable about this account is they are experiencing the birth of the New Testament and they don't get what, it has to, what the Old Testament has to do with it. Uh, and Jesus teaches here that it has everything to do with it. The Old Testament has everything to do with the gospel and the cross. Right? So let's uh, see if we can uh, gain Jesus' perspective here. Um, Jesus in this passage, it's a, it's a short to the point passage, and Jesus makes two brief statements and they're, they're separated but connected. And the first statement is this. Uh, he said, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. All right, so he, and, and it's been a theme throughout Luke. Everybody knows that Jesus has his mind fixed on Jerusalem. He is going up to Jerusalem with great resolve and purpose. And so the, 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 the twelve are aware of that. They, they know where they're going. Um, and Jesus makes it very clear that the reason he's going there and what's going to happen in Jerusalem will be the fulfillment of everything written in the Old Testament. Um, and the translation, it says, uh, all that's written about the Son of Man will, by the prophets will be accomplished. Really kind of is a bit anticlimactic and really um, accomplished is not the best word here because the weight of the word that's used here is, is much more significant than this accomplishing something. Uh, the word here is the word, if you know Greek, is telos. Uh, it's, it's the final end or conclusion of something. Right? It's, it's a word that points to a final goal or state of something that reaches its perfection, not because it's flawless or sinless, but because, because it's completed, a completed work. Probably the best example of this in our world today would be graduation. We just celebrated a graduation for a number of you. <coughs> And uh, graduation is, is a completion of something, right? It's a final end of all your studies. And whatever level you graduate, uh, you go to school so that on this one day you get this piece of paper that says, you did it, right? You finished. You completed all the requirements. In fact, we use words like fulfill, right? You fulfilled <coughs> the requirements to get your high school diploma, your master's degree, your Ph.D., Right? You fulfilled it. You have accomplished it. And the idea, uh, the, the root meaning of the word telos is a turning point. It is a turning point in your life. And when we say that you've graduated and you've finished, it doesn't mean you've finished life. Right? So some of you have, maybe. I don't know. It's like, I graduated. I'm retiring now. Right? I did it all. But for most people realize that's, that's retire, uh, graduation is not retirement. It's really a beginning. It is a monumental turning point in your life where you've accomplished training and education that's now prepared and equipped you to go out and use those, that knowledge uh, for the rest of your life. So it is, in a very clear sense, a turning point, an end, but also an end that, that, that stirs up a new beginning. Well, that's the significance of the word. And when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to complete the writings of the Old Testament, it has that kind of weight. I'm going there so that the all that's written in the Old Testament could graduate, in a sense, could be completed, could be fulfilled, could be accomplished. Okay. Uh, and it, it would be easy, you know, he says here, all that's written about the Son of Man. It would be easy to see this narrowly as Jesus is going to Jerusalem 
in order to uh, fulfill a, a handful of prophecies related to the Son of Man. Does anybody know, how, by the way, how many prophecies are rela- related specifically to the Son of Man? That, that specific title, anybody know? How many? Take a guess. Anybody say one? One, that's right, somebody knew. One, there's one, right? So all, if Jesus is only talking about the prophecies related to the Son of Man's title, uh, he's going to fulfill one prophecy. Uh, clearly, Jesus means more than that, and I won't go into all the reasons why, but it's, it's, uh, it's clear that what Jesus has in mind here is all the writings of the Old Testament. Uh, and the authors who wrote it were the prophets. So even Moses, in this case, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, is prophetic in his role of writing Scripture. Right? So all, all of Scripture, and we'll see in a minute why, why I believe this, all of Scripture really points to uh, Jesus and the cross. And Jesus sees the whole message of the Old Testament being fulfilled in what he's about to do in Jerusalem. It will be completed there. Well, the second statement Jesus makes is simply this. He says, um, For he, that is the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. Uh, Jesus gives a very detailed, uh, concise yet detailed picture of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He says that he will be handed over to his Gentile enemies, the Romans. Uh, it says that he will be mocked. Uh, to be mocked is to have your life made a joke of. It is to not take it all seriously who you are or what you are about. Now, some people enjoy being the class clown, and they've kind of their claim to fame is having their whole life be a joke and a mockery, right? And they've gotten really good at making people laugh at, at their life or at other people's lives, right? Uh, but when somebody like Jesus is on a serious mission, and he's devoted his whole life, and he's about to lay down his life for that mission, right? It is a horrible thing to have that mocked, to have it treated as if it is nothing, as if it is a joke, right? But that's what Jesus says is going to happen. They are going to make a joke out of all that I've taught and all that I've said. Uh, Then he says that he will be shamefully treated. And the emphasis here is not so much on the shame of what would happen to Jesus, although... His death was as shameful as it could get. There's nothing more shameful than crucifixion on a cross. But the emphasis here is not on on Jesus, but actually on those who would do this to him. Uh, What what they would do to him is so horrible, so beyond what's human and humane, that it brings shame onto all those who did it. It was so far out there, so brutal, uh, so um, so animalistic in its in what they did, it's a shame on humanity. Right, the way they treated him. Uh, he will be beaten, whipped, flogged. Right, and for the Jews who lived and who had seen this often, they knew what this meant. To be beaten, whipped, and flogged was a horrible thing at the hands of the Romans. Finally, he says he would be killed by them. He would be executed, and after three days, he would rise again. Uh, In short, Jesus explains that he is about to face a horrible end to his life in Jerusalem. That's why he's going there. And Jesus envisions and knows that ahead of him lies the cross, and after the cross, the resurrection. Um, 
Then, after Jesus makes these two statements, uh, we get a commentary of how the disciples respond to this. Now, when you hear these things, uh, even just talking about them, there's a sense of dread and sorrow over what Jesus is about to enter as he goes to Jerusalem. But notice what the disciples say. Um, they, they, They did not understand any of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Uh, the twelve had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Now, it's easier to read those, those words and imagine that Jesus, that the disciples somehow did not understand what it meant to be beaten, flogged, whipped, and killed. Well, that's not what it means, right? They understood that part. Okay, they understood clearly what Jesus meant when he said he was going to be killed. Okay, it's not rocket science, and he wasn't speaking a different language, right? They understood that. Uh, what they are wrestling with goes a bit deeper than that. And the word understood is actually the word to piece something together. Uh, you, could, you could translate it this way. They could not bring these two things together in their minds. Right? There's these two statements. I'm going to Jerusalem to fulfill scripture, and I'm going to die there and be, uh, rise after three days. Okay. What they couldn't understand is how those two statements could go together. That's what they're wrestling with, right? How fulfilling scripture and Jesus dying and being brutally beaten could be uttered in the same sentence. For them, those two things were as disconnected and as far apart as they could possibly be. And that's what it says when they could not understand. They could not put these pieces together, literally is what it means. They couldn't connect those things. And it says that the meaning was hidden from them, uh, which is a a very interesting concept. Does it mean God hid it from them? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, Certainly it would take God's revelation for them to understand it. But what it really means is this, that as they understood the Old Testament and as they read the Old Testament, the real purpose and meaning of the Old Testament was hidden from them. As they looked through the Old Testament, they did not really understand what all the writings of the Old Testament were about. They did not understand that the point of it all and the goal of it all was the cross. So as they understood and as they thought about and as they reflected on the Old Testament, they just cannot imagine how this could be the fulfillment of what was written in the prophets, what was written in Scripture. In that sense, it was hidden from them. And so, as the disciples are, are listening to Jesus, right, uh, they, they, they imagine Jesus has taken a very wrong turn and is running towards the wrong goal. Maybe you've coached like Little League basketball or football or whatever. Uh, there's, there's never, it never fails. In some point in the season, one of the very enthusiastic little athletes will get the ball, be it whatever kind of ball, and they will take off in the wrong direction for the wrong goal, right? And it's amazing in basketball, you know, eight-year-olds who can never make a layup will make that one, right? They can, make, they can try a hundred times at the right basket and never make it, but when they run down to the wrong basket, they never miss, right? Um, and it doesn't happen just with kids. Maybe you're familiar with the story of uh, Wrongway Regals who played in the, ni- in the Rose Bowl in 1929 and recovered a fumble 30 yards from his goal line, picked it up and got confused and ran it back 69 yards the wrong direction. And he only uh, was prevented from scoring a touchdown for the other team because his, one of his teammates tackled him on the one-yard line. 
right? And he was so shamed by the whole thing, he didn't want to go back in the game. And his coach said, look, it's only halftime. Just get back out there and play, right? Um, well, the disciples were imagining Jesus has just picked the ball up and is running the wrong direction, right? He's headed towards the wrong goal. It's going to be disastrous. What are you talking about? You're going the wrong way. This is not your end zone, right? This is not your basket. You're going the wrong direction, right? But the problem, as we will see, is that they greatly misunderstood what the Old Testament was about, right? Um, so I'm going to take just a second. I'll try not to get too bogged down in this, but uh, I want to take just for a minute, and, and it's, it's hard for us because we, you know, we, we know the gospel, right? And we, we know the story of the cross, and so we see through the Old Testament glimpses of the cross, right? But I want to just help you imagine for a minute what the disciples were experiencing, right? Uh, and it's not hard to do because a modern-day Jew would think exactly like the, the, the disciples did 2,000 years ago, right? When they read through the Old Testament, when they read through their stories and scriptures, they don't see Jesus. They don't see a cross, and they don't see suffering, right? What do they see? Well, it's quite illuminating, and you can, you can Google this and do your own research, but it's quite fascinating. Uh, all, all, all over the Internet, there's articles written by Jews who will tell you how they see the Old Testament, right? And here's an example of one. I, I thought it would be good to, to take one that's really obvious. Okay, so I picked the most obvious passage I can think of, Isaiah 53, right? And when we read Isaiah 53, what do we think of? Okay, here, I'll read part of it. He was wounded for our transgressions. Uh, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, does anybody not see Jesus in that? Anybody? Don't raise your hand, okay, because everybody's going to stare at you, right? I mean, we read that, and it's like, wow, and that, that just has Jesus and the cross written all over it. Almost every other word just brings up these images of Jesus suffering and death on the cross. And you might wonder, how could Jews read this and not see Jesus, right? Well, I'll, I'll tell you how. This is how they read it, okay? This is how, this is how they see it. I'm, and I'm quoting this word for word. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy for telling how the world will react when they witness Israel's salvation in the Messianic era, okay? The verses are presented from the perspective of world leaders who contrast their formal, former scornful attitude towards the Jews with their new realization of Israel's grandeur. After real, realizing how unfairly they treated the Jewish people, they will be shocked and speechless. Okay, that's how they interpret Isaiah 53. Right? Uh, I'll say it again. They write, These verses describe how world leaders will be shocked with disbelief when God's servant, Israel... Uh, despite all contrary expectations, is vindicated and blossoms in the Messianic age. Right? So this, this is a picture of Israel being mistreated and abused and crushed. But at the Messianic age, they're restored, and all the world would go, oh, we've been so stupid. We did not 
we didn't get who Israel was, right? Um, the verses, are, again, are presented from the perspective of world leaders uh, contrasting their former, former scornful attitude towards the Jews with a new realization of who they are, right? Um, so the article goes on to say, so how did the suffering servant come to be associated with Jesus? Right? And they're going to talk about this, right? Well, after his death, the promoters of Christianity retroactively looked into the Bible and applied through mistranslation and distortion of the context these biblical verses as referring to Jesus. You confuse people. Uh, and they, and they, to, to reinforce this, they say, look, even in Christian scriptures, the disciples did not consider the suffering servant as referring to Jesus. And in this passage, it's true. They didn't. Right? They didn't get it. Right? Uh, real, real quick, let me just take a couple verses out of Isaiah 53 so you can see how they translate it. Okay, the verse, the passage, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Right? We're familiar with that one. Okay, this is how they see it. This verse describes how the humbled world leaders confess that Jewish suffering occurred as a direct result of our iniquities, that is, depraved Jew hatred, rather than the stubborn blindness of the Jews. Right? So as they see it, the Jews have been great victims of abuse and, and mistreatment all through history. And all the bad stuff that happened to them in the Old Testament was not a result of their sin and stubbornness and rebellion. It was just as a result of out-of-control world leaders who hated Jews. Right? It had nothing to do with God's judgment. Now, I don't know what they do with all the other huge passages of Scripture, like the whole book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, that talk about God pouring out his judgment on Israel through the nations. So I don't know what they do with that, but um, I didn't study those. But that's how they see it here. Um, um, indeed, the Christian idea directly contradicts the basic Jewish teaching that God promises forgiveness to all who sincerely return to him. Thus, there is no need for the Messiah to atone for sin. Right? No need for that. You don't need an atoning sacrifice for sin. Um, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And God has inflicted on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, how do you not see Jesus in that, right? Well, the nations realize their lack of proper leadership, shepherding, caused them to treat the Jews with disdain. They further acknowledged how punishment that should have been befallen on the nations were averted through Israel's suffering. Right? So, so that's how they see this, right? Israel has been a victim Israel has, has suffered, and their suffering is actually alleviated, uh, in some way redeemed uh, and rescued, uh, all the rest of us, from judgment, from hardship, right? Uh, and you can go on and through each verse, and they kind of come up with the same explanation. Um, in the end, they, they say that uh, these verses describe how God's servant will cause the masses to be righteous. Okay, so the Jews are going to bring righteousness to the world, not through atonement, but through their mission to serve as light to the nations, leading the world to righteousness through knowledge of the one true God. They will do this by example and by instructing the nations in God's law. Uh, the, the disciples probably saw the Old Testament much in this light, right? They probably had a very similar understanding of the Old Testament. So when they're looking through the Old Testament, 
they're not seeing Jesus, right? They're not seeing Jesus. Uh, and the result of that is this, that uh, if you read the Old Testament this way, it, the goal of, the, of all of the Old Testament is simply this, the restoration of Israel, right? Uh, the, the grand climax of the Old Testament is that the Israel gets, gets their country back. Uh, they somehow dominate all the other nations and through whatever means teach us how to love God and follow the law. And uh, ultimately, uh, it's, it's simply geographical and political. There's nothing necessarily spiritual about this. It's just they get their king back, they get their nation back, they get to be self-ruled. Uh, and they get to kind of restore what, what they had during the time of David. Um, along with that is, is the necessity, the vital necessity of rebuilding the temple. Although, honestly, I don't know why. Uh, and if you go to Jerusalem today and you talk to Orthodox Jews, I mean, they are fired up about rebuilding the temple. right? And, and they're ready. They've got all the stuff built. They've got the clothes. They've got... And you can you can see some of the some of the uh, utensils and, and uh, candle obras and stuff that will go in the temple are already made, right? They're ready for a new temple. I don't know why, right? Because they no longer believe in the necessity of atoning sacrifices. Right? Uh, since the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., they haven't had a place to do that, right? So they basically argued, as, as this, this says, that there's no need for atonement. God's good with it all. You just confess and God, God's okay with it. He will wash away your sins. I don't know what they do with Leviticus, right? Apparently the Jews don't like it either. <laughs> Not their favorite reading apparently either, right? Um, but there's a need for the temple for whatever function it is, I don't know. Um, and, and, and the result is this. If you honestly read the Old Testament and that's the end of it, it is a dreadfully hopeless story. It's a dreadfully hopeless story because the reality is um, God himself uh, throughout, throughout the Old Testament despairs trying to create what Israel longs for. Right? They want a country where they can be self-ruled and somehow honor God. In all of the thousands of years of Old Testament history and the 2,000 years since, has it ever happened? Has it ever happened that Israel has got there? Well, never, right? Never. Uh, you go back, Abraham was the father of the nation. How did it go with his family? Well, his children were horrible, right? They were the most wicked, deceitful, tricky, nasty bunch of boys ever, right? And their grandkids were worse, right? Uh, eventually, you know, they go through all the joyful times of the judges, and um, you know, along comes King David, sets up the monarchy. It looks like there's hope, right? And they get a kingdom, and they got this great king. But what about David? Well, his life kind of self-destructs in immorality uh, and in murder of uh, Bathsheba's husband and all the problems that come out of that. And, and, and David's son, Solomon, is, is kind of the best. He's the wisest man that ever lived. But he wasn't smart enough to know that it's not wise to have a thousand wives, right? And uh, they lead him astray into idolatry. So David's great hope, his son who built the temple, he, he, he himself washes out spiritually. And from there, the kings go downhill from there, right? 
each one a little bit worse, a little bit lower, until finally God has to send them off into exile and judge them. And they weren't victims. They were under God's judgment for their own sin and rebellion, the prophets say over and over again. So God finally brings them back. He restores them. He gives them another chance of what do they do. They, They fall into sin over and over and over again until... Again, God has to wipe out Jerusalem. He has to destroy the temple after Jesus. And for 2,000 years almost, Israel was scattered across the the earth. And of course, Israel has come back and now they're a nation again. But it's not a nation that worships God. Uh, Nobody, the most Orthodox Jew would not argue that their country is teaching the world how to follow God. Right? But there's another way to look at the cross, uh, look at the Old Testament. That's through the lens of the cross. Uh, we don't have time, and you know, my, this is what I want to do. I want to take the next six hours and go through the whole Old Testament, so you can see the cross in the whole thing. You'll hate me, and I'll end up on the cross, right? So, so we're not going to do that. Um, let me just make a couple of points. First of all, it is how Jesus viewed the Old Testament. When Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to fulfill what is written in the scriptures. When Jesus read the Old Testament, he saw the cross all through its pages. From Genesis to uh, Malachi or whatever, you know, however, which he didn't read the same Bible we did in the same order. Um, But it's there through the whole Old Testament. Right. So what Jesus saw when he read the Old Testament was very different than what his disciples saw, and, the, and then what modern Jews see. Uh, and the Jews make a good point that the disciples did not see it, but Jesus did. Right? And the Jews cannot say that Jesus did not deliberately intend that what he did in Jerusalem, dying on the cross, was absolutely in fulfillment of all that's written in the Old Testament. Jesus said, that's why I'm going to Jerusalem. That's how I understand what the Old Testament is about. Right? Um, let me just look at two examples in the Old Testament that kind of go against each other uh, in an interesting way to help make the point. So you can kind of skip through the very beginning, skip through Abraham, forget him. Uh, Let's talk about sacrificial lamb. Uh, Clearly in the Old Testament, one of the huge themes in the Old Testament is the need for burnt offerings and sacrifices. And that's where we get bogged down in, in, in some of the Pentateuch, are these long explanations of these offerings that need to be made. Uh, I'm very thankful in modern world we don't do church this way. You know, that we didn't all show up with a goat, a lamb, a bull, and you all come up here and I just take turns whacking its throat, oh, you know, pouring the blood out, and we have a big barbecue afterwards. Like the barbecue part, not so crazy about worship involving so much blood. Um, that's what church was for them, right? That's what worship was. The sacrificing and killing of a bunch of animals. Um, And so uh, throughout the Old Testament, it's clear that these are required for atonement. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. That's an Old Testament passage, not new. It's quoted in the New, but it's from the Old. The Old Testament is clear that in order for God to wash away sin, there must be sacrifice. There must be the shedding of blood. And uh, where, where they get this idea that there's no atonement in the Old Testament, I, it was mind-boggling to me. Even if you read it as a Jew, it's clearly there. 
but one of the best examples of this is, is in Exodus uh, with the Passover, right? Let me just read real briefly a small section of the Passover as God was about to re, re, uh, lead the Israelites out of um, slavery and bondage in Egypt. And he does it through uh, sending his death angel to kill the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Okay, so get this. What is the price of Israel's redemption? What's well, the firstborn sons of Egypt? Ring a bell? Should, right? It should. And notice what Moses says. He says, Moses called the elders and said, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the doorpost with the shed blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house and strike you. Right? Amazing picture of redemption at two levels. First, uh, it was necessary for the firstborn of, Israel, uh, of Egypt to die. That was, the, that was the redemption price of setting Israel free. Secondly, the way they... Uh, avoided this death angel coming and destroying them was through the blood of a lamb. Right? And, and Jesus, as he, as he talks about going to Jerusalem, he knows that he will give his life on Passover. Right? He will be the Passover lamb. And his blood will be applied to our life so that the death angel, the, the, the judgment and wrath of God that causes eternal death, will pass over us because we're under the blood of Jesus, right? Great picture, right? As we see Passover in the light of the cross, it, it has a whole new meaning, right? Not that its original meaning doesn't mean something, but there is a fuller truth, a more complete view of what it represents. But compare that with Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, okay? Notice what Isaiah says. What to me is this multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required you of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure the iniquity and your solemn assembly. Right? When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Jesus, said, God says, the sacrifices you're offering are inadequate. It's, it's essential and it's necessary but because you bring them with such sinful hearts, they are meaningless. But notice what he says. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of the deeds from before my eyes. Learn to do good and seek justice and bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become as wool. Uh, 
How do you put those two things together? God says, bring sacrifices. They bring the sacrifices, and God says, would you stop? Well, the shedding of the blood is necessary for the atonement of sin. But the shedding of bulls and lambs is inadequate. Offerings brought by sinful, wicked people cannot do it. A greater sacrifice is needed. Something more than lambs and bulls and goats is necessary to atone for our sin. Jesus understood that his death, his blood was essential to bring about redemption. So what's the point of all this? Well, uh, we need to see the Old Testament through the lens of the cross. Uh, The Jews make the accusation that Christians have read the cross back into the Bible. Amen. It's true. We do and we have. But here's my here's my defense. Have you, ever, have you ever read a really, really good story, like a mystery, where you go through the whole story and you just cannot put the pieces together, right? You cannot solve the crime. You cannot solve the problem. Uh, until you get to the very end, at the very end, the author throws in this brilliant twist. And all of a sudden, the whole story makes perfect sense. Do you like reading books like that? I love stories like that. Uh, if you don't read... You can watch a movie, even better, right? Uh, take the movie The Others. Have you seen the movie The Others? Great story. And I'm just going to wreck the whole movie for you because I'm going to tell you how it goes. It's about this mom and her two kids who live in this haunted house, right? And uh, throughout the whole story, there's something odd about this mom and her two kids, right? Their house is continually shrouded in fog. The boy has this allergy to sun, so they just always have the curtains closed and live in darkness. And they're terrified by these ghosts who have apparently moved into their house. And as the story unfolds, you start getting glimpses of these ghosts, right? Well, the turn and twist of the story is brilliant. You get to the end and you find out that the mom and the two kids are the ghosts, right? That the mom, uh, in living during World War I in desperation when her husband was killed in the war, poisoned her two children and took her own life. And they're the ghosts. And they don't know it, right? And at the end of the story, it kind of dawns on them what's happened. And they realize real people are living in the house. They're the dead ones, right? Brilliant, right? Brilliant. And you, and you go back through the whole movie going, oh, right? Oh, I get it now. I understand what it means. Well, that's what the cross does to the whole Old Testament, Right? It is the great twist in the story that makes the whole Old Testament go, oh, I get it. That's what it means, right? You cannot understand the Old Testament if you do not see it through the lens of the cross. But the opposite is also true. You cannot really fully appreciate the glory and wonder of the cross until you start to see how all the Old Testament points to it. I think one of the reasons we oftentimes diminish and underestimate the glory and wonder of the cross is we see it only in its New Testament perspective. It becomes so much deeper and richer and fuller when we start to comprehend all that the cross means through what the Old Testament pointed to. Um, It fulfills and completes the story. But not in the sense that it's the end, like the end of all things. 
But that it is truly that great turning point. When Jesus died, it brought to an end everything that the Old Testament pointed to, but not as a final end, but as a turning point that starts a new beginning, right? Where we move forward with a new perspective on who God is and what reality is. And we are marching towards a new final goal. And the goal is so much greater than just a restored Israel. The Bible is clear that God will restore Israel. He will reinstate Israel as a nation. He will, he will sit on the throne of David as its king. He will rebuild a temple that would be marvelous. And the nations will come to Israel and they will worship God there. Right? But it is so much more than what the Jews picture. Right? And sadly, they're going to be greatly disappointed to know that the, the, the king who sits on the throne in Jerusalem is Jesus. Um, that's a twist they, weren't, they did not see coming. Right? Its meaning is hidden from them because they do not see it through the cross. Um, and the good news is that uh, Israel will be a blessing to all the nations as, as God promised to Abraham. But they will be that through the person and work of Christ, through all that he's done to die for us on the cross and to rise again and to rule and to someday fulfill his glorious kingdom in ways we cannot imagine, because they are not just physical and material, they are ultimately spiritual. Right? It is the glory of heaven that God will bring to Jerusalem in that day. And it will be glorious, and it will have a splendor beyond what we can imagine, right? because of the cross. Right? It is so much more than just Jewish nationalism. Right? It is the restoration of the world, and of every creature and being who bows and names the name of Jesus. Uh, to jump to the very end of the story, let me read in closing from Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, the Lion of Judah. I love that image. But then notice what else it says. And between the throne and, and, and the four living creatures and, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the spirit of the seven, uh, the spirit, seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the thro throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which, they, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Amazing. God brings together the Old Testament, Lion of Judah, the New Testament, the Lamb of God, and he redeems a people for himself. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.